It's September 30th, 1868. The village of Stickney in Lincolnshire, England is barely a dot on the map. Less than 300 people call it home. One of them is 35-year-old Priscilla Bigadike. She lives in a tiny cottage with her husband, Richard, their three children, and two male lodgers. Their living situation is less than ideal. The dwelling is cramped and uncomfortable, with only two rooms in total, a tiny kitchen where they eat, and a bedroom which is shared by everyone in the house. Inside the bedroom, there are just two beds. The Bigadike family sleeps in one, Priscilla, Richard, and their three children, while the lodgers take the other. Today, as usual, at a little before six in the evening, Priscilla hears the door open and Richard Bigadike returns from work. He digs wells for a living, a hard, back-breaking job. It's been a long day and Richard gives his wife a weary smile as she greets him. She can tell that all he wants is to sink into a seat by the fire and eat his dinner. As Richard slumps into a chair in the kitchen, peeling off his coat and kicking off his shoes, Priscilla hurries over to the stove. She pours some tea into a cup, lifts a tray out of the oven, and dishes out his dinner, mutton and cake. Minutes later, she carries a steaming cup of tea through to Richard and hands him his dinner, which he gratefully accepts with a weary smile. Priscilla, the children, and the lodgers have already eaten, so Richard enjoys his meal alone, laughing as he watches his two eldest children run around the cramped kitchen. Before long, his children's hungry eyes are staring at his cake. No mistaking what they're after. He hands it down to them with a grin. Half an hour passes in easy conversation. Richard chats to the lodgers and they watch the sunset through the window. But then, suddenly, Priscilla sees Richard wince in pain. He clutches his stomach and staggers across the kitchen, only just making it to the toilet where she hears him being violently sick. Priscilla leaps to his aid and fusses over him when he sits back down. Maybe it's something he's eaten, she suggests, or it could be a sickness buck. But no sooner has she spoken than Richard rushes to the toilet a second time. Now, his face white as paper, his eyes streaming with tears, he begs Priscilla to call for a doctor immediately. She looks to the lodgers seeing their worried expressions. If it's something he's eaten, then they'll have it coming too. The younger lodger, George Ironmonger, runs out of the door to fetch help, leaving Priscilla and the remaining lodger, Thomas Proctor, to tend to Richard. The three children watch in fear as their father writhes in agony. By the time help arrives, Richard is showing no signs of improvement. The doctor is young and inexperienced, but his best guess is that Richard has ingested something poisonous. He leaves his patient with some medicine and a promise to check back on him later this evening. But Richard's condition worsens during the night, cramps tying his stomach in knots, pain coursing through his body. Priscilla is helpless to ease his suffering and can only watch as her husband slides further downhill. Seeing the agony on his face each time fresh cramps hit, she worries how much more of this he can take. But what is it that struck a healthy man in his prime with such brutal speed and savagery? Has he ingested something by accident? Or could foul play be involved? And if he has been deliberately poisoned, who has the means and motive to want to cause him harm? 
in the days and weeks to come, an investigation will set tongues wagging in the small town of Stickney and divide opinions for years. However, someone knows exactly what happened the night Richard fell ill. Years will pass before they finally admit, with their dying breaths, the truth of the controversial poisoning. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Priscilla Bickadike, a woman who found herself involved in a scandal. It's about a gruesome event that ripped through a close-knit community a young family torn apart by tragedy, the wife at the center of it all, and a deathbed confession given years later that could signal a huge miscarriage of justice. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Life in 19th century England is one of class divides. The world of the small town is a far cry from the thriving metropolis of London. For those growing up here in Stickney, Lincolnshire, 140 miles from the capital, it's a place steeped in working-class culture. Farming and manual labor account for the majority of employment. It's hard, honest work, but doesn't generate much income. It's this world that Priscilla Bigadike is born into in January of 1833. Little is known of her early life, but it's easy to imagine how she spends her days, learning household skills, working menial jobs, and preparing for marriage, a necessity for women in the 19th century. In February 1853, aged just 21 years old, Priscilla meets 23-year-old local man Richard Bigadike. The pair are attracted to one another instantly 
and begin a romantic relationship. Later that year, they marry and move into a tiny cottage in Stickney to start their life as husband and wife. But Priscilla sees little of her new husband. As a well sinker and laborer by trade, Richard works long, hard shifts to provide for his family. Each morning, he's up at the crack of dawn and doesn't return home until the sun has already set. Priscilla doesn't seem to mind this independence, though. She quickly takes on the role of housewife and soon after becomes a mother, giving birth to her and Richard's two children. The years pass peacefully, Richard laboring from dusk till dawn, Priscilla raising their family, and both watching with joy as their children grow up. Although there's not much money to go around, they seem content with their lives and rarely complain. After all, life could be worse. At least they have a happy family and love for one another. But then, in 1864, after 11 years of wedded bliss, the Bigadikes find themselves in a dire financial situation. There's barely enough money to pay the rent on their cottage, let alone feed two growing children. And so, in a desperate attempt to make ends meet, the Bigadikes decide to take in lodgers, long-term guests who'll live with them, eat with them, and pay a share of the rent. The first lodger to join them is 31-year-old rat catcher Thomas Proctor. He takes the Bigadikes' only spare bed in their cramped room and is soon joined by George Ironmonger, a boatmaker. Not long after Proctor and Ironmonger arrive, Priscilla falls pregnant again. Their third child is born in February 1868, over a decade after their first. This unexpected birth takes the total in the house to seven. And in a dwelling this small, with so many mouths to feed, it's only a matter of time until something snaps. As spring melts away and summer arrives in the small village of Stickney, it isn't just temperatures that rise. In the Bigadike's cottage, tensions are also reaching boiling point. When Richard Bigadike returns from work, he's tired, hungry, and fed up. The last thing he wants to do is help out with household chores or look after the newborn. But Priscilla is also exhausted. She's having to cook for everyone, deal with the two teenagers, and raise a baby on her own. Both husband and wife blame each other for their misfortunes, and with emotions already high, their disagreements escalate into vicious fights. What's more, Richard repeatedly sings cruel accusations at his wife, the most serious being that Priscilla has been unfaithful. He's well aware that his absence causes her to spend more time with their two lodgers than with him, and his jealousy is palpable. As their arguments drag on across days and weeks, Richard's paranoia grows, and he accuses Priscilla of sleeping with one of their lodgers, specifically 31-year-old Thomas Proctor. On one occasion, he even goes as far as to suggest their youngest child is Proctor's, not his own. It's not clear how Richard reaches this conclusion, but it's a serious accusation to make. If true, it could trigger disastrous consequences. Not only would adultery signal the end of their marriage, but it would also make Priscilla a social outcast. In 19th century England, having an illegitimate child is enough to be shunned by friends, family, and society. Richard needs to be careful about what he says, both for Priscilla and his own sakes. 
On September 30th, 1868, 38-year-old Richard Bigadike returns home from a hard day's work and eats his dinner by the fire, just like countless times before. Today, though, there'll be no winding down for the evening as Richard is struck by a mysterious illness. He's sick enough that Priscilla sends for a doctor who visits several times throughout the evening. On the doctor's second visit at around 11 p.m., he sees that Richard is no better. In fact, he seems to have worsened. Richard's face is white as a sheet, his skin gleaming in sweat, and he barely has the strength to sit up straight. The doctor frantically prescribes him more medication, but nothing seems to help. Every time Richard eats or drinks even the tiniest amount, he's violently sick. Feeling as though he's unable to help anymore, the young doctor holds his hands up in defeat. He suggests that Richard's eaten something poisonous and all they can do is pray he'll recover soon. Seconds later, the front door slams shut behind the doctor and Thomas Proctor rushes to Priscilla's side. He offers to keep an eye on Richard during the night while Priscilla gets some sleep. Bleary-eyed and exhausted, Priscilla agrees and slumps into a spare chair in the kitchen. Tragically, though, the family's prayers go unanswered. At around 6 a.m. the next morning, after almost 12 hours of sickness, Richard Bigadike dies. Priscilla has become a widow, aged 35 years old. The weight of the world is on her shoulders now, as she faces the challenge of raising a family alone. She has no income, no savings, and no money. However, it's not long before these concerns evaporate to be replaced by far more worrying events. Events which will spiral completely out of Priscilla's control. It's October 2nd, 1868. Richard Bigadike has been dead a little over 24 hours. The doctor initially identified Richard's illness as poisoning, and when he now examines the body, his suspicions are confirmed. Richard's stomach and intestines are lined with patches of inflammation, a telltale sign of poisoning. Not being an expert in the field, though, the doctor carefully removes Richard's organs and sends them to Guy's Hospital in London, where they'll be examined further. He expects that the results will be discussed in detail at the upcoming inquest, a necessary step for all suspicious deaths. Meanwhile in Stickney, Richard's sudden death is the talk of the town, and Priscilla suddenly finds herself at the center of local gossip. She knows what everyone's whispering. If her husband did indeed die of poisoning, who better place to have slipped some poison into his dinner than the woman who made it? For now, all anyone can do is wait. Maybe the answers will be revealed at the forthcoming inquest. The date is now October 3rd, 1868, just two days since Richard's death. The Rose and Crown Inn is the setting for the inquest into his mysterious passing, and the district coroner is in charge of proceedings. This isn't a trial, although there is a jury. It's designed to establish the cause of death and make decisions on whether anyone should face prosecution for what happened. If it turns out that Richard died from natural causes, then the case will be closed and no one will be punished. But if it transpires that he was poisoned, then someone will face the consequences. And for the police, 
That someone is Priscilla Bigadike. You see, after speaking to neighbors in the aftermath of Richard's death, police discovered that the Bigadike's marriage was not a happy one, at least not in the final few months. Police have heard all about their explosive arguments and Richard's accusations of cheating. This fighting, coupled with poison being the suspected method, makes it easy to understand why police believe Priscilla is guilty. What isn't clear, though, is why officers haven't looked into the two lodgers who lived under the same roof. After all, if Richard was poisoned, then they'd have had the exact same chance to do the deed as Priscilla. Unfortunately for Priscilla, this means that all eyes are now on her. The coroner opens up proceedings and Priscilla makes a statement. Barely 48 hours have passed since her husband died, but she's determined to defend herself in front of the jury and prove her innocence. You see, although this inquest is designed to find out how Priscilla's husband died, it will also determine her own fate. If she's found guilty of his murder, then she'll be put to death. The stakes have never been higher. Priscilla stands up and addresses the room confidently, her face a solemn mask. She calmly describes to the coroner the events of that night. How Richard had taken ill, the agony on his face as he struggled to keep his dinner down, and what it was like to watch him die such a painful death. Priscilla swears that he couldn't have been poisoned as there isn't any poison in the house. She throws her arms up and says she has no idea how anything toxic might have found its way into his dinner. You'd think that such a speech from a recent widow would soften hearts or elicit an element of sympathy at least. But the coroner is unmoved. He asks Priscilla to sit down and tells her that they need to wait for the results to come back from London to decide whether or not her husband was poisoned. Only then can they confirm if she's innocent or guilty. So for now, the coroner decides to adjourn proceedings. This is fairly commonplace. But what happens next takes many by surprise. Despite the lack of hard evidence against her, Priscilla is remanded in custody. Her wrists are clamped in handcuffs and she's led away to the local prison until the coroner is ready to resume the inquest. When Priscilla hears this cruel order, her eyes widen, hands fluttering to her mouth. She wonders aloud, who will look after her three children? Bad enough they've lost one parent, but the thought of being parted from them for an unknown amount of time is too awful to bear. Priscilla desperately protests her innocence, but her pleas fall on deaf ears. So, in a panic, she switches tack, telling one of the officers that Richard had left a suicide note. According to her, he'd planned his death for months. However, when the officers ask her to show them the alleged note, she lowers her eyes and admits that she burned it, although she offers no explanation as to why. To officials, it feels like a last-ditch effort for mercy, one that isn't convincing. And so they usher Priscilla out of the inquest and into a prison cell. This will be her new home. For how long, though, she has no idea. The long, monotonous days stretch out for Priscilla, with no word from London. When a week passes, she decides to take matters into her own hands. On October 15th, 12 days since she arrived at the prison, she requests an audience with the prison warden, 
He agrees, but warns her that anything she says could be used against her if the matter ends up in court. She nods keenly and insists she has something to get off her chest. Standing before the warden's desk, Priscilla takes a deep breath and starts to talk. She tells him that she's just remembered an important detail about her husband's death, a detail which she forgot to mention at the inquest. According to Priscilla, the day her husband died, she saw something highly suspicious. She caught sight of Thomas Proctor, the 31-year-old lodger who her husband accused her of sleeping with, pouring a mysterious white powder into a teacup. Then, Richard Bickadike, recently returned from work, drank from that very same cup. It was only half an hour after this that he fell ill. In addition, she claims that during the night of his death, Proctor offered to sit with Richard so that she could get some rest. When she woke up, she saw Proctor putting more white powder into Richard's medicine. She tells the warden that she took a tiny sip of his tea after Proctor left the room. The substance tasted bitter and left her feeling ill for two days. Priscilla's implication is clear. Whatever powder Proctor slipped into his drink was the stuff that killed him. As Priscilla speaks, the warden dutifully notes it all down and promises to pass it on to the coroner. If Priscilla's stories are true, they could prove her innocence. But will her words be enough to save her? One thing Priscilla's statement does achieve is to persuade police to arrest Proctor. He's taken into custody and locked behind bars while they wait for the inquest to resume. Whether the coroner believes Priscilla's account remains to be seen. As it happens, she doesn't have long to wait to find out. The following week, on October 21st, the autopsy results are back in from London. When the inquest resumes on October 21st, everyone in the town of Stickney is desperate to hear the results. Hundreds of people splash through the rainy streets, bracing the cold weather as they hurry to the courtroom. Will it be revealed that Richard Bigadike died of natural causes? Or was he poisoned? And if so, do they have a murderer in their midst? Once inside the courtroom, the spectators stare curiously at the scene below. 35-year-old Priscilla Bigadike stands with her hands in chains, her expression unreadable as the coroner reads out the damning results. The tests performed in London prove that Richard Bigadike was poisoned with arsenic. Upon hearing these words, Priscilla's heart must sink. She surely knows that this cause of death solidifies her place as prime suspect. It's not known whether anyone is brought forward to defend Priscilla, nor if she's represented by a lawyer. However, the coroner does call up a procession of witnesses to testify against her. One of the first witnesses to testify is a relative of Richard's. When told of Priscilla's claims of not having poison in the house, the witness shakes her head. She explains that she visited the Bigadikes a few months back and was offered some mercury by Priscilla to help with a mouse infestation. Although mercury is a separate substance to arsenic, it's evidence that Priscilla lied when she told the coroner she had no poisons in the house. The next part of her testimony is even more shocking. She recalls how the day after Richard's death, she had gone round to see Priscilla. While there, she claims to have overheard Proctor warning Priscilla to be careful of what she said. Priscilla's alleged response was to ask him if he thought she was a fool. 
As the possible implication of the testimony settles over the room, Priscilla looks on in disbelief, shaking her head. The picture it paints is one of collusion between Priscilla and Proctor, as though the two of them had planned Richard's death. Is it possible that Richard's suspicions of adultery were right all along, and Priscilla wanted her husband out of the picture? Next to take the stand is the grandmother of the other lodger, George Ironmonger. She lives next door to Priscilla and tells the coroner about the regular arguments she heard between the Bigotites. In one of the more extreme examples, she claims to have overheard Priscilla saying she wished he was dead. The jury murmurs in disapproval. Now, there's a clear motive for murder. However, these witnesses alone might not be taken as anything other than hearsay. After all, in a small town such as Stickney, where everyone's business is public knowledge, gossip has a tendency to run rife. But there's one man whose words are taken very seriously, the prison warden. He tells the court everything Priscilla revealed to him just one week ago, when she claimed to have seen Proctor spike Richard's tea. The warden explains how strange he finds this testimony, that Priscilla allegedly watched Proctor poison her husband but chose to say nothing. If she did indeed know the effects of the white powder, then why didn't she intervene? Why did she let her husband drink the tea? Unless, of course, she was in on it too. The prison warden suggests that Priscilla and Proctor worked together to kill Richard. In response to this accusation, Proctor speaks up for the first time. He angrily denies any involvement, shaking his fist at the warden, his face reddening as he does. If there's any truth to the rumors that Priscilla and Proctor had an affair, it doesn't show now as they glare at each other across the room. Later that day, as the afternoon sun starts to set, the coroner invites Proctor to the stand. They've listened to Priscilla's story and the case against her. Now it's Proctor's turn to speak. But Proctor politely declines and explains that his friend George Ironmonger, the other lodger, will testify on his behalf. Perhaps he believes that having a character witness will be more convincing than giving his own testimony. As soon as he's standing in front of the coroner, Ironmonger contradicts Priscilla's story. He swears that he never saw Proctor put anything in Richard's tea and that his friend is entirely innocent. When Priscilla hears these words, she shakes her head in disbelief. But unfortunately for Priscilla, Proctor's innocence is a sentiment which is echoed throughout the court as further witnesses testify. As the inquest draws to a close later that same day, the coroner asks the jury to consider the evidence and reach a verdict. It would be impossible to overstate the importance of this decision. If the jury finds Priscilla or Proctor guilty, they'll go on trial for murder, a punishment which would result in death. The minutes fly by and before long the jury returns, but it's not with good news. They issue a verdict of willful murder against both Priscilla and Proctor. They believe the pair conspired to kill Richard Bigadike. Just hours later, two magistrates affirm the decision, meaning Priscilla and Proctor will stand trial for murder. However, in the days before their murder trial is scheduled to take place, a surprising development occurs. In December of 1868, a grand jury announces that they don't believe there's enough evidence to charge Thomas Proctor with murder. Going back on the decisions of the coroner and the magistrates, the grand jury agrees to clear Proctor of all charges, 
he's released from the prison in Stickney and declared a free man. Now, Priscilla Bigadike is the only suspect in the murder case. On the morning of December 11th, 1868, Priscilla finds herself once again standing before the judge and jury. The stakes have never been higher. If she's found guilty, she'll be sent straight to the gallows. The prosecution calls many of the same witnesses that had appeared at the inquest. They lean in heavy on those that speak of marital difficulties, of Richard's suspicions about his wife having an affair with Proctor, and the witnesses who claim Priscilla kept poison in the house for rodents. After the concluding arguments, the judge asks the jury to retire and consider their verdict. It takes the jury just a handful of minutes to do so. All too soon, the foreman pushes back his chair, standing to address the judge. The judge asks him to call out their decision. Guilty comes the verdict. But he adds that they wish to recommend an element of mercy. They feel that the evidence is largely circumstantial, so ask that Priscilla be sent to prison for life rather than face the death penalty. In response, the clerk of the court turns to Priscilla and asks her why she thinks she deserves to have her life spared. She stares back at him as a hush falls over the room. Throughout the trial, she's looked calm, almost indifferent to the seriousness of what's going on. Now, though, for the first time, her eyes fill up and she has nothing to say. Maybe she feels relieved that the jury doesn't think she should die. Or perhaps she's heartbroken that so many people believe she killed her husband. Either way, tears spill over and carve a path down her cheeks. The judge looks on for a moment, accepting her silence as evidence of her guilt. Then he pulls out a square of black fabric. It's symbolic in the British legal system, known as a black cap, and used by judges for one reason, and one reason only to pronounce a sentence of death. Despite the jury's plea for mercy, the judge has decided that Priscilla will be taken back to the prison for a date with the hangman. Her tears keep rolling down her pale face, but nothing short of a miracle can save her now. As she's led away, she has no idea what will happen to her children. She perhaps prays they'll be taken in by a caring family from the village, but it's more likely they'll be sent to the workhouse. Priscilla will never get to see them again. It's December 28, 1868, the day of Priscilla's execution. Pale morning sunlight washes across the prison walls. 200 yards away stands the gallows, the noose swaying gently in the breeze. Up until recently, there would be a crowd gathered to watch the hanging take place, but a recent change in the law means this will be a private affair. Perhaps, thankfully, her children won't be here to see this atrocity take place. As a result, when a door opens and Priscilla is let out, it's into an eerily quiet morning. Her executioner stands unmoving as she approaches. When she reaches him, he carries out a procedure known as pinioning, having her arms bound together behind her back. In light of her fate, Priscilla's been fairly stoic this morning. But as her arms are tied, the enormity of what's happening overwhelms her and she faints. 
Two guards are there to catch her, and when she wakes up seconds later, they march her the short distance to the gallows. The prison chaplain follows behind, reading solemn prayers as they walk. They reach the foot of the steps leading up to the noose, where they pause so the chaplain can address her. He asks her if she still stands by her claim that she is innocent. She answers in a firm, clear voice, just a single word. Yes. The chaplain pauses for a beat, and all that can be heard is birdsong and breeze. When he continues, there's a sadness to his voice. All I can say now is that I leave you in the hands of God, and may he have mercy on your soul. The bell in the nearby tower starts to chime. It's time for her execution. Priscilla is marched up the steps to the platform. As the hangman places a cloth cap over her face, she speaks what will be her last words. You're not going to hang me, she says. Surely my troubles are over. But that's exactly what's about to happen. The hangman lowers the noose over her head, cinching it tight. But for some reason, instead of placing the knot at the back or the side of her neck, he positions it under her chin, a placing which is far less accurate and will cause a more painful, drawn-out death. Why the hangman chooses this, only he knows. Priscilla sucks in as much air through the cloth as she can, breath ragged, no telling which will be her last. As the bell tolls for the fourth time, the trapdoor gives way under her feet and she falls, weightless for a second, then jerks to a halt at the end of the rope. As the few assembled look on, it's apparent that something has not gone according to plan. Because of the strange knot placement, the drop doesn't kill Priscilla as swiftly as it should. She's still breathing, even as she slowly chokes to death. Priscilla lasts an excruciating three and a half minutes before finally, somewhat mercifully, she dies. Incredibly, the surgeon who examines her body afterwards says that despite her agonizingly slow death, he is satisfied that the execution has been carried out humanely. But others disagree. In fact, months from now, a new technique of hanging, known as the long drop, will become law in Britain. The long drop ensures that the prisoner's neck is broken instantly at the end of the drop, so that they die within seconds, unlike Priscilla who had to endure minutes of suffocation. Priscilla had protested her innocence right to the bitter end, but with nobody willing to fight her corner, she has paid the ultimate price. Whether she told the truth in those final moments is something she has taken to her grave. Rightly or wrongly, this should be the end to a tragic tale. But there's a twist, one that won't surface for another 14 years. And when it does, it could signify a gross, miscarriage of justice. It's now 1882, 14 years since the tragic events that led to Priscilla Bigadike's execution. England has changed in so many ways, socially, politically, and even technologically. However, in the small village of Stickney, people still talk about the infamous Bigadikes and how Priscilla mercilessly poisoned her husband. Long forgotten is the name of the man briefly believed to be her co-conspirator, Thomas Proctor. But today, Proctor is about to creep back into the limelight once more. 
Aged just 44 years old, he lays on his deathbed and admits that he has a confession to make. The exact nature of his failing health isn't clear, but Proctor knows that he doesn't have long left. And so he decides to share a secret, something he's not spoken a word of for 14 years. With his dying breaths, Proctor admits that he's guilty of having committed perjury. In 1868, when he was charged with the murder of Richard Bigadike, Proctor swore he was innocent. Now, he contradicts his previous pleas and says he knew all along that this was a lie. It was he who had poured the poison into Richard Bigadike's tea, just as Priscilla had insisted. If his dying words are true, then Priscilla's protests of innocence may have been valid after all, meaning that a heartbroken widow and single mother was sent to her death for a crime she didn't commit. Or was she? You see, Proctor's confession doesn't necessarily alleviate Priscilla of her guilt. She admitted to seeing young Proctor pour the arsenic into her husband's drink on two separate occasions and did nothing to stop it. It's certainly possible that two people were involved in Richard Bigadike's murder, Priscilla and Proctor. But while Proctor managed to wiggle out of justice, Priscilla was put to death. And that's a sentence which nothing, not even a guilty deathbed confession, can overturn. In the years following Thomas Proctor's deathbed confession, the general mood towards the Bigadike murder case shifts drastically. Perhaps it's because Proctor wiggled out of justice while Priscilla was punished for his crime. Or maybe the tragedy of the case finally resonates with the community, that a young wife and mother was executed when there was no physical evidence against her. Whatever the reason, Priscilla Bigadike's name is eventually redeemed, and she's granted a posthumous pardon, an apology from the justice system for the verdict they now feel should never have happened. Frustratingly, though, it's unlikely we'll ever know the truth of the murder. Did Priscilla and Proctor work together to poison Richard? And if so, then why? Or did Proctor act on his own accord, desperate to steal Richard's wife? With Priscilla, Proctor, and of course Richard now dead, it will remain a mystery. But that doesn't mean the story is forgotten. As recently as 2011, the tragic events were brought to life on stage in a show called Priscilla Bigadike the Musical. The narrative presented is a far cry from the one back in 1868. No longer a convicted murderer, Priscilla is now thought of as a victim of circumstance who could have and should have been saved from the gallows. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Wayman Camille Jr., a man plagued by an addiction to alcohol. In 1975, after enjoying a drink with his good friend Alice Mock, Camel staggers back to Mock's home and passes out drunk. But when he awakes, police officers are crowding around him. Mock claims she's been sexually abused by Camille. The trouble is, Camille can't remember committing the crime. His memory is hazy, blurred by alcohol. In fact, he has no idea whether he's innocent or guilty. This worrying question will haunt him for over a decade until Alice Mock, on her deathbed, 
finally admits the truth to what really happened that night. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 